So what should we consider? Dharma. Any anything we could talk about? You're interested in? Everyone looks at the carpet. Aaron, you got any interesting thoughts? I have been following guidance in which uh, I have kind of switched my meditation technique mm -hmm. recently. Uh, not that recently, but um, from one which is going straight to looking at the mind object or trying to go straight to looking at the mind object or consciousness itself um, to following the breath um, with the expectation that in a long time it will lead to a stable um, ability to look at the same thing. Mm -hmm. But because I switched from the first to the second, um, I am finding that sometimes in like longer meditation uh, sessions, I will go from one to the other. And I was wondering like what your experience or experience of other monastics who have gone through the meditate like the progress in meditation at, w at what point you because I mean I'm, I'm still pretty early on in my practice but I do according to two different like of two different techniques that I've been following How, like this is this is kind of the point that you're trying to get to is looking at the mind as uh, like looking at the mind as an object in mm -hmm. itself um, so and who talked you that the first uh, was originally was um, within uh, Advaita Vedanta, so mm -hmm. not within Buddhism. And then and when I teachers in Advaita, um, um, originally through a friend of mine who was relaying his knowledge of it. All right. Um, but then through uh, Ramakant Maharaj, who's uh, uh, an Indian kind of, I was at his ashram in India. Mm -hmm. And he's an Advaita teacher? Yes. And who was his teacher? And his teacher was Nasagadatta Maharaj. Nasagadatta, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. I'm familiar with that. Okay. So mm -hmm. And that was your first inclination. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. And how, how long did you do that? Um, probably about a year, mm -hmm. but with periods of less or more. Mm -hmm. Intensity, mm -hmm. um, and then over the last maybe as much as six months, I was finding that um, I it wasn't like I, oh, I was starting to read more into um, uh, Buddhism, and I found that they aligned really well, especially the teachings on anatta. And uh, so I started looking more into Buddhism, and I found Ajahn Brahm's book on meditation. Mm -hmm. And so, and how he taught meditation was through um, following the breath, like very with with deep concentration. Mm -hmm. And so I have that's kind of what I've been trying to do more of. Um, so, yeah. Um, and so, why why did you find why did you switch? Um, because I found it hard to s like stabilize in the 
like looking and I didn't and I didn't have fleshed out enough guidance mm -hmm. whereas when as uh, I've been following uh, Ajahn Brahm's uh, book he, he it's like very details his instructions mm -hmm. um, so I found that like I that seemed more reliable to so you have a methodology yeah and the other is kind of vague yeah exactly right. but I do think that there is no contradiction or I, I'm not paying attention to any contradiction because I do think the approaches are very aligned, mm -hmm. and so this is when I feel like when I'm coming coming uh, into like this type of Buddhism that it it feels very supernatural to me, and I feel like I can I can understand, mm -hmm. but I I'm kind of at at a point where I'd like to go deeper into it, and I think that I know what I'm doing, but I'm not sure. Well, both, both Ajahn Brahm and Nisargadatta are asking you to first and foremost stay in the present moment, right? So that's, that's a huge challenge. So what Ajahn Brahm is saying, if I have it right, he's saying use the object to stay in the present moment, and Nisargadatta's saying look at the I am to stay in the present moment. So w whichever one of those helps you stay in the present moment uh, more rigorously, then develop that without dismissing the other. So if the, if the object, the breath, is something very obvious and helps you to stabilize your, stabilize your mind in the present moment for long periods of time, Realizing, realize that's what you're doing, and that's a very skillful method to develop and sustain as an exercise for your whole life. All right, and Nisargadatta's argument is that by focusing on an object, you run the risk of being like a, a horse in a stall, where you only the you only see the object, and you don't go beyond objective reality to the transcendent. That's their argument. Right? So their argument there's a danger in that kind of focused meditation mm, because you'll get so focused that you'll forget you'll forget the very looking at the looker, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what they're asking you to do. But I think that argument is too strong. It's too it may happen, but for most of us it doesn't happen. So I would I would suggest figure out ways of meditation that help you sustain the present moment so you know what's going on in the present moment and that's where you can take it very very deeply like Ajahn Brahm is saying mm -hmm. to kind of jhana levels but you don't have to you have to just learn how to be in the present moment for sustained periods of time so that that present moment awareness then begins to play out wherever you are you know whether you're gardening or whatever you're doing that intention to be in the present moment, know the way things are, becomes very powerful in you, and is not dependent on the breath. So by making your intention to observe the breath in the present moment, what you're doing is building a strength which is irrespective of the breath or the object of meditation. Right? So if you get that principle right, you got to you know have a sense of calm. That's just what I'm doing. I'm just doing that. And then the other will come up from time to time. 
that because in, in the four foundations of mindfulness, it's body, feeling, jitta, and dharma. So knowing the mood of the mind is very important in understanding what the hindrances are. So the hindrances to concentration are restlessness and dullness, uh, greed and hatred and doubt. Right? So somehow, if I'm going to focus on the breath, I also have to know that I'm dull. So I have to know the mood of the mind to assess what I need to do to be more successful in the meditation. So you can't really separate them that much. Right? So if you're, if you're using the breath, then to monitor also the mood of the mind. The breath is your central object, and you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm planning a trip to Nepal, or you know, I'm worrying about a loan, or you know, whatever it is. The, the breath helps you to see the mood of the mind, and then you have to let go of the mood of the mind to come back to the breath. They should be helping each other, right? Um, right in terms of what Nisargadatta is doing, or Ramana Maharshi, those teachers, um, that's very important too, because if you don't have some way of not always being absorbed into the objects, you don't have a transcendent teaching. You have an objective teaching, which always keeps your mind on an object, you might calm it, but you don't realize the unconditioned. And the point of point of Buddhism is the realization of the unconditioned. So in Theravada, there's a controversy. You know, to realize the un- unconditioned, how much samatha practice do you need to do? And this has been an argument that's been going on probably for 2,500 years. Right? So how much do you need? Well, you need enough to stay in the present moment and to eventually be able to turn the mind on the mind and sustain stability that way. So that takes you to, to what Lon Poliam is talking about in the talk this morning. He takes Anicca Dukkanatta as his, almost like his Samatha practice, his presence practice is, this is changing, this is changing, this is uncertain, this is uncertain. So he gets a principle of Dharma as a way of grounding himself in the present moment. So it's no longer just an object, it's the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the Dhamma. So he's using the fourth foundation of mindfulness, change, as a way of grounding himself in the present moment. And he's doing it so rigorously, he gets very, very good results. So that is the way of liberation, the contemplation of anicca dukkha because that particular perception always takes you away from attachment. Um, to contemplate change, you can't be wrapped up in the change. Contemplate anatta, you can't be wrapped up in a self-identity. Huh? To contemplate as dukkha, you say well, it, it's not. It can't be an object. It can't be an experience. It can't be an emotion. It can't be good. It can't be bad. So it always brings you back to awareness. So those three characteristics are really, really skillful. Really, really skillful ways of perceiving, interpreting. So I would say you want you want to be able to ground yourself with an object of meditation. And then you want to bring in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, contemplation of three characteristics, constantly. So that becomes your go-to perception. If you, if you read what Lompoliam is saying, that's his kind of all his default. This is changing. Gets depressed. This is changing. Gets elated. This is changing. You know, it's constantly. This is changing. Constantly, constantly. It was powerful, powerful focus to do that. Right. So there's the power of uh, like a samadhi mind, which he's sustained through seemingly through Anapanasati, but it's now got a focus which isn't attached to the object. You see? Mm-hmm. So when you take it to Anicca Dukkanatta, three characteristics, 
then you're doing what um, the Advaita are asking us to do. You're, you're practicing non-grasping. So non-grasp, like Nisargadatta, his teacher said to him, from what I've read, you are the enlightened. He took that to the mountain for three years, came back, seemingly in pretty good shape, selling beaties in India, right? <laughs> so, so there was something about that directness, or, or if you read uh, Ramana Maharshi, he's, uh, who am I? And he's, da, who dies? And he just through one night of intense, intense looking, he has some liberating experience. Or uh, Eckhart Tolle, he has the thought, I want to kill myself. He says, well, that's two people. <laughs> I want to kill myself. Well, what's going on? He's, and he questions that very deeply. Uh, and, you know, he's very depressed, but then he seems to come out of it very special. Huh? So, um, in, in Theravada Buddhism, uh, we, we talk about it you know, there's a kind of debate, sudden enlightenment, gradual, that. Well, in the text, they say it's like a beach. That the, the liberation is like a slow beach that goes into the deep water. But it's not a beach that is walked through with a sense of self. You know, if I'm doing any kind of time-bound practice, I am someone here, and I am limited, and if I do this practice then somewhere down the road I'll be enlightened. That's already ignorance. right? So what we're doing is we're awakening to the way things are and not saying I'm becoming anything. And that's what's crucial in Theravada is that, that the awakening isn't the becoming. right? It's awakening here and now, here and now, here and now. And then gradually that gets stronger, the defilements start to fall away and realization becomes more and more profound. So it is a it is a gradual path, but it's also very sudden. In in a sense, it's suddenly. Oh, this is the way it is now, not self. Anicca So you keep coming to that realization again and again and again and again and again until that becomes more profound. So I would say, like, if you if if your practice brought you to a state where the uh, that methodology that you had at first was insufficient, that's a good sign. That's your intuition saying, no, I need something a bit more grounded, a bit stronger. I need to do that. So you do it. You know, and, and, and keep keep trusting your own intuition. You know, there's something about you which which uh, you you refer to others, but you say, Hmm, this isn't gelling. There's something not quite right. And then intuitively you'll try stuff and and then, then just watch. Well why is that more effective? Not through an, not through intellectual analysis, but just but just watching. You know, like I've just been watching myself work in the workshop. So why do I what do I like about the workshop? I said, oh, and I watch. Oh, I like learning stuff. I like learning new things to do, but I hate finishing. <laughs> I hate the sanding and the painting. I give that to someone else. <laughs> but but just observing, I observe. Oh, what is it about this experience that's fruitful or helpful? It's the same with you as you as you try the breath and you become curious about that, allow that curiosity to be a learning about, well, why? Why is this? This seems to have a good effect. It has a beneficial effect. And keep trying that way. That's where you, you get beyond doubts. You see, no, this does have, has, a, has a good effect because you know, you know from your own experience. So having a kind of go-to object of, of uh, attention is very important. And if you find like something which is really, really resonates with you and, and, and keep doing it.
keep doing it so it's just it's like uh, it's an automatic rather than the automatic response being in thought which is when we come to the training it becomes something grounded in the body something in reality now so you find like Ajahn Sumedho he uses the sound of silence he's just constantly there uh, the nada sound which you get sometimes when the mind's very empty uh, Ajahn Pasano uses the breath all the time so you'll find people who've been practicing for quite a bit of time they always have one place they they can do other practices but they have this place where they go to they know oh, this is the present moment and it feels this way now so grounds them into present moment so when you pick up the breath you know the way things are you know whether the breath is shallow or, or whatever and it's not a proliferation of thought so I would say it's yeah and it's the classic isn't it Anapanasati but be very careful of, of the tendency trying to become something and this bhava tanha, this this tendency of doing something to get something else, that's that's where you always get, we always all of us get caught up. So the secret really is patience, and just being really really patient with whatever whatever's there. So both that you know both have validity, and you have some insight around that. Um, and how old are you? Go for it. Just keep going. It's great. It's a good investment. Yeah. And it's interesting. You know, and you, that's where you live. You live in the mind, don't you? It's very, very important. Yeah, that's uh, helpful. Yeah. It's a style that, that we do in Thailand. And it, you know, we always do things in threes in Buddhism. That's the empty, you know. Um, so it just comes from the style of Thailand. So the idea is like the first, say at Wapapo, they used a, I think they used a, a, a shell casing from the Vietnam War. It <laughs> <laughs> had quite a good sound. <laughs> what rifles into plowshares, you know, that kind of. And uh, so the first is like just announcing, okay, bang bang three times, so once. And then it's uh, uh, increasingly. Uh, shorter spans between each ring. Um, three times? Three times. Three, three times, times three. Three It depends on which monastery. Sometimes just the one. Yeah. <laughs> but then it's for sure, it's three repetitions of increasingly more frequent hits until the finale. That's too esoteric. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to give a manual for it. Call everybody. Try to make it more musical.
where they all fit. That's a good exercise. No, it's it's very good for the intellect. Um, well, it's how 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 complex you want to make it, but you you need you need a kind of grounding teaching, right? The, the, the difficulty is you have like four noble truths, Paticca uh, Samuppada, dependent origination, three characteristics, and they seem kind of diverse, but they are. They are for one idea, non-grasping, yeah. liberation. Okay, so if you use the vulnerable truths as your uh, footprint, then in right view, you have to fit all those other uh, intellectual teachings that we have. So what you need to find out is like, uh, for vulnerable truths, what is the relevance of craving? And what does craving really mean? And what are the, you need to know the khandhas. You need to understand why the Buddha, or how the Buddha is describing our human experience. So you need to get your head around the khandhas, because that will come up a lot. Five khandhas, right? Mm-hmm. The body, uh, feeling, perception, conception, and sense consciousness. And, so and then you need to... Um, understand why he's pointing to craving as the problem and that gets you into like dependent origination three characteristics uh, why uh, non-attachment and that takes you to the um, understanding of the unconditioned so you, you, you have uh, the way I do it I come from what I think the Buddha realized the way he describes it, and he says, uh, there's the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, the island, peace, nibbana. He lays it out like that. And then from that realization, he starts teaching. Right? And what he's pointing to, that which is born and dies, cannot be the unconditioned, cannot be the unborn. And he says our, our, our attachment um, to the sense realm manifests through craving, feeling and craving. And that it's all dependently originated and it's an Ichidukanata. So all those right view things you want to start to read about. You want to read about dependent origination, three characteristics, five kindness, four noble truths. So then there are other teachings like teachings around determination, about energy and so on. But the right view teachings are I think basically, why why the Four Noble Truths? Why craving? Why is he emphasizing that? How does it relate to the unconditioned? Dukkha. Like, what's he mean by dukkha? Rather than just suffering. It, it's, a, it's a bigger word than that. It's the unsatisfactoriness of anything that's changing. Because it's, it's if I'm looking at something that's changing, I won't notice the unchanging. This is what Advaita does. It's as if you're looking at the, the changing conditions, the breath or whatever, you're looking in the wrong place. So, so that's very important to understand that. Why? What letting go means, what non-attachment means, what the unconditioned is, and why the conditioned realm is a false prophet kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a kind of false place to go to. So you, 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 if you start with something simple like 
um, affordable truth, like if you start with Bhante Gunaratana's um, Four Noble Truths, start something simple like that and write it down. Or take the word of the Buddha even. I, I could give you that. It's, it's, uh, it's got the scriptural references of the Four Noble Truths. And write those out. Yeah. Write out the English. Write out the Pali. And then let them just percolate through your mind. That's, that's a really good way to start to engage these ideas. You, you, you. Maybe I'll. G- I think maybe the word of the Buddha will be good. Uh, I have a, I have a copy of someone there. Ajahn Sumedho went through that 80 times his first year. Mm-hmm. He had no teacher because th- his his preceptor couldn't speak English. This is before he met Ajahn Chah. Mm-hmm. Went through it 80 times. So it's not it's not something you kind of read and put down. It's something you write down and then you let it percolate through your mind. So if you took that, that that contains all the basic teachings. All of that, and it's all from the canon. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very good. I started with the, uh, the history of the Buddha, uh-huh. the story of his life, and uh, so my mind organized, would like to organize by the numbers. Well, we're great on numbers. <laughs> <laughs> we're great on, you know, we're always saying that. It's, it's, if it's three, it's this. If it's eight, it's that. We're, we're fabulous on numbers. So you're, you're good. You're in a good company. Have you seen the chart in the library? If you go to the library window, look back this way, there's the ultimate chart. I mean, it's all there. It's good because you really start all (laughs) (laughs) Some people like it, some don't. I've looked at it for hours, I think. It's no sense. (laughs) Keep breathing. You want, you know, you don't want to believe Buddhism. You want to, you want to see why the Buddha is emphasizing that we look in this way. And when you understand that, then you understand the teaching. You might not see it happening. It might be too quick for you. But like Lone Paulian, he picks up very early from Ajahn Chah. I'm going to do, I'm going to observe Anicca so he understands why that's important, and then he starts to look in that particular way. So, so the Buddhist teaching is giving you a, a, a kind of lens on the variety of life. There's so many things we need. He says, "Well, yeah, we got all this experience, but look at it this way. Mm-hmm. You know, this will help you. If you." And if you see the reason for it, mm-hmm. then you you have the faith to do it. It becomes very sensible. Remember you remember, yeah, you remember to do it. And then it's not just kind of yet another abstract which you're trying to get your head around, just an intellectual abstract, because it makes sense. So there's there's an intellectual insight, which comes first. It's like you get the puzzle, right? You get the joke. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see. And then you start to apply it so that the insight becomes more and more profound. And I think that's normally how I learned to get the, the intellectual. Mm-hmm. But It's, no, it's good. That's probably one of the failings of, of this place is that we don't we don't offer intellectual structures like a like a, a Buddhist kind of like like a like a monk would study all those structures, and I did. But because we're not organized that way, that's one of the 
weaknesses that we have is that that beautiful structure that that exists there. So you, it's something you have to kind of do on your own or do online, I suppose, or something like that. But it's very helpful, very helpful. It it it, it eliminates a lot of the intellectual doubt. I mean, you still have sort of existential doubt, right, as a human being. But the intellectual doubt, you know, you know what the pra- you know what, what the practice is, and you know why this teaching is there. It's tremendously helpful. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think that was really good, but now I want to, like you, I want to have another realm to be in. It's, it's, it's intellectually, it's beautiful. You know, it's because it's consistent. Mm-hmm. It really is impressive. You go, you go across these teachings, and I've just never found in, any inconsistencies. On social theory, I have, you know, inconsistencies. Oh, I don't know if that makes sense, but in terms of the Dharma, solid. From I mean I I'm not really you know, all that well read in it. But it's all very impressive, and the intellect. Yeah, the first when I came across it in 1972, 71-72, I was given a very difficult text commentary on the suttas by to a monk who was a very well American, well grounded in the suttas. Wow, is that difficult? My head was just, what is this about? But the the challenge was good. It really made me stop and think and look and see things in a different way. So I I really appreciated that. Yeah. So I'll get you a copy of that. Where did the book go? It's one of the old BPS ones. But in that book, they have they have in normal text from the suttas and then italics commentary and that's kind of a big part of Theravada is to okay this is this is what the texts say and this is what someone commenting on it says and we we're very um, adamant that we know the difference so it doesn't the 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 original as close as we have to the buddha that never morphs into something else it's not that we're, you know, kind of blindly attached to it. It's just, no, this is the closest we have to the Buddha's words. And then this is what this particular tradition is saying about those words. So you have, you have access to that like anyone else over the ages. Whereas if we didn't have that kind of strict definition, it could easily morph into uh, something which was not so related to that. To that original. <laughs> kind of, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> Whispering party game. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a good one. Anjan, is it correct to try and go about the practice like the preliminary stage? Is I'm just going to develop samatha or be able to concentrate my mind before I even attempt vipassana? Because like when I went to Spring Rain Sangha. Uh, they were teaching Vipassana as, okay, well, you're going to stop just looking at the breath, and now every time your mind goes away from the breath, you're going to look at what took it away, and that is what their version or idea of Vipassana was. But then I could never really get centered on anything for myself, so I just feel like for myself it makes more sense to just keep hacking away at 
developing some sort of stillness before I even attempt to. Well, I was never taught a sort of strict delineation between those two words. So that's, it's not foreign to me, but it was foreign to my introduction. So those words were, were used together. So, you okay, take your intuition. Your intuition says, if I do what they're saying, I just start thinking too much. I'm going to learn how to ground myself uh, in the breath. Great. But Vipassana in general is just having the intelligence to know why you're suffering. So you should be using it all the time. Formable truths, you pick that up, you know, you're, you're, you're in a traffic jam and someone cuts you off and you get angry. That's Vipassana, looking at the anger. Because you, you can't focus on the breath, right, and ignore the traffic. So if you see Vipassana as, as not just a technique, but just as the wider capacity of humans to contemplate, to reflect, and to see cause and effect. If you see it more broadly, and then see that Vipassana in some traditions is taught as a technique. This is a very new, mm-hmm. a very, very new kind of thing. So if you look at, maybe if you look at that word as a broader word uh, of generally being a reflective person, generally knowing, you know, your mind is getting upset, and you're doing that all the time. Right? Otherwise, you'd be in a, in a psychiatric ward. So, uh, take it that way. And then use the, if you find, use the meditation period to really do some samatha practice. So, you get yourself really, really grounded. Mm-hmm. And then, when you go to a, a different place and they say, uh, we're going to do vipassana, just see, okay, what do they mean by that? You know, just kind of get your own sense of... Because there seems to be many ways. I, I asked the teacher once... Uh, She's from Michigan. I, I, I said, you know, you don't find the Buddha sitting under a tree and doing vipassana. You don't find it in the texts. Mm-hmm. And she says, yeah, but you got to give it a brand if you're mm-hmm. teaching in the West. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you, you know, you get different, different. So what that word means seems to be specific to, like what Mr. Goenka says, is different than what Mahasi Sayadaw says. Not that they're wrong. So you have to kind of get a definition of what they're doing, what they're offering you. And then maybe make that word. What word would you use for that mindset which understands you're getting upset and trying to work it out? To me, that's insight. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the way I use the language. And then, but but definitely because people don't get that much chance to still the mind, to concentrate the mind, it's it's good to to you know yeah dedicate that time to really be present and get really strong at it. It's not like you're doing it 20 hours a day, right? You know, you're working and relating. <laughs> you're relating to life and so on. But I think the most important thing is that actually that contemplative mind, which you know, which is which is reading Dharma, and then taking this into ordinariness of life, because that's most of your life is that. I think I've always just been afraid of distrusting any discursive thinking. Like uh-huh. Yeah, I, d- I don't know how, how correct I am. If it, if I think that's uh, pretty accurate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah the, the thinking mind just can... Because it usually involves a sense of self. You know, why am I thinking so much? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. So, so to get to silence and then let silence open you to the way things are. Let silence be the teacher, let silence allow insight to arise. That's very powerful. Mm-hmm. So if you can, if you can, uh, you know, what are we trying to do? I mean, it seems to me we're trying to stay in the present moment and bring the, bring the mind to silence. 
by not adding to it. So if you're if whatever someone says to you adds to the noise, to the mental proliferation, then it might be work for them. Well, maybe it's not so good for you. So someone like like might hear the nada, that sound of silence, Lopo Samedo suggests, and they might really find that really silences a lot. Other people we get a bit vague with it. Uh, some people do breath meditation. Some people I know have been practicing for years can't do it. They get they get too controlled. So they like to keep the mind really open, mind on the mind. They actually find it better. So that's the I think important thing is that you keep taking those insights you have and trusting them because they come up for a reason, don't they? They're not just arbitrary pig-headedness or something. Right? <laughs> this is my last. Note. I was reading a thing by Ajahn Chah and. Uh, Two words he was using are vitaka and vichara. Mm. And sometimes I've found like when I am silent and I, my mind picks up a topic that's good to think mm-hmm. about, it'll actually help things along just to okay. think about it, you know, and not really try and get anything out of it, but just to contemplate it. Yeah, that's one of the ways they say deal with sleepiness is to to bring up uh, analytical the analytical mind. So if you're really sleepy, you bring up dependent origination. Actually, you're going to bring it up in your mind. With feeling as condition as craving, with craving as condition as attachment, atta- you know, and, and your mind gets involved. So, so that's. Uh, but do 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 keep you know keep seeing. You're getting results intuitively. You sit mm, bit to the left, bit to the right, and those are the only things you can you can know. And then. Any teacher that offers you reflection, think about it. You know, try it out. But then, you're you're the expert, you know, about your own mind. That's that's what you really learn. How do you encourage you? Yeah, encourage that contemplative side. Isn't this the weather? That hornet's nest is, or wasp's nest is hanging <laughs> in there real sweet. <laughs> and the hummingbirds? Have you heard hummingbirds? They were out here. Oh, I had mine this morning. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Flew around. Say the females? Um, or is it just a bad year for red? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You usually get the males, don't you? And the female, yeah. Uh-huh. I had the, we had them here. It's one of those years. Familiar. <laughs>
about how it was bad for achievement with the hummingbirds. I haven't seen them back again. Good lecture. Were you doing this? I think I probably Probably told her she'd be diabetic or something. I didn't think about that. I said rotten teeth. I should have been counseling her to meditate on her behavior. Oh, can I just encourage one thing? After the evening meditation, try to practice noble silence. You probably do it already, all the way to the next to, to breakfast. That's a nice discipline to get into. And so rather try try to use time to if you can extend the evening meditation for an hour or two into formal practice, very profitable. Especially this weather, you can do walking meditation. So, and also just remember people in the house that hear the talking. So try to, like after the evening puja, after the evening meditation, noble silence. If you have to say something, say it. But And then just try to try to extend the times that you do formal practice. Or even like if you can, if you have some time, do, do a half hour walking before the sitting, or 45 minutes, and try to get... The more you get like two hours, three hours of formal practice going, the more... You're putting the intentions of mindfulness and presence very skillfully into the mind. So, if you can do that, you'll find it really, really useful. That's the pattern of forced monasticism: is that you do the communal work, and then you disappear into your own space, and you try to do formal practice or study, one or the other, and so you you, you get this sense of, okay, we're in a community, we're working, you work hard, kitchen, workshop, wherever, and you put it down, and then you try to, try to not get too, not to be asocial, but to kind of not stir your mind with too much personal narrative, because, you know, once we start talking about ourselves, our life histories, it just creates memories and thoughts, and then inevitably you, you know, you might crack a off joke, and then if you're really mindful, you go back to your cushion. Well, that wasn't good. So your mind gets busy, very, very busy. So kind of protect your protect your own mind from getting too too busy. You kind of use use the formal practice, use use your room. Um, and do quite deliberate things, like if you can do yoga or tai chi, things which require some kind of uh, real centeredness. That's very, very helpful. Because now we are we are there. We're not we're not so engaged with the lay community before we were much more around here, the monks. Now we have our little paradise over there. Um, it's hard to pull me out of there. <laughs> so sometimes, and I know I know the presence of the monastic form is very helpful. It kind of reminds you reminds you of the practice. So um, yeah, just just keep that in mind. And be friendly, you know, be be kind to each other, but but be be okay to say, well, uh, I won't I won't engage with that right now. I think I'd like to do some formal practice. You find really really helpful because it's a pretty rare opportunity, I think, this kind of a space. Huh? 
I don't know how I lucked out. <laughs> I really kind of, I think about it, I said, how did I, I didn't, I didn't figure this out, it just happened. Mm. I've heard of a thing called karma. Yeah, that's <laughs> what they say. <laughs> well, I'm really fortunate. I met two fabulous teachers, well, many teachers, but Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Samuel, I mean, I'm very close to Ajahn Sumedho now, so any any vacation time I get, I try to go to Thailand and hang out with him. Will you see him in November? Yeah, I'll go to India with him. Oh, mm. I didn't know that. Very nice. Well, that's nice. And then spend a week at his monastery. Is Richard going to hmm? India? Does Richard do this in Richard, he will go? Edward, yeah, it's the kind of crowd of people that go off and travel with Long Paul. Seeing from a group from Malaysia, group from Bangkok, group from Cal some from California. Oh. Very big. Nice. It'll be 20, 25 people. Wow. And I'll just Limo. load along. All <laughs> 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 you know, all being well. One never knows. He loves. He loves India. Home Paul. Yeah, he really yeah. loves it. He always comes back with a bad cough uh -huh. <laughs> from the bad air. What is that? Frog. Really? Oh. Tree frog. Oh. That's a big noise. Yeah, frogs can pump it up. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Deep, <laughs> <laughs> deep. I'll be gone on uh, Friday. I have a retreat. I'll be gone for a week. Then I'll be back. Then I'll go to uh, New Hampshire and come back for the ordination. And then I'll have Katina. And then I'll go to California for their Katina, come back. And then go to India. So I'll be Traveling around now, yeah. Seventh of November, seventh or eighth. We're using the tent this year, so that's a big experiment for us. It's a it, the the yearly calendar of Theravada monasticism is around the centered around the rainy season and Vasa. In, in Pali, it's the Vasa or the rains retreat. So that's what we're in now, from the full moon of July till the full moon of October, three months, and it corresponds to the monsoon in India. So the monks were not wandering then; they were in the monasteries. And then, after after the rainy season, they would uh, start to collect their gear to go wandering again. And that was a kind of a pattern they'd stay at the monastery for three, four, five months, and then they'd wander for three or four, five, half a year. And so the Kitina is a ceremony in the month after the full moon of October. So between the full moon of October and the full moon of November, lay people can make an invitation to the order to have a Kitina ceremony. 
and they set the day with the monks and on that day they offer robe cloth and other requisites to the monastery and the monks that evening sew a robe, one robe, usually it's the under this, this robe here and uh, all the monks who have been uh, in residence for the range retreat they try to participate in the sewing of the robe so we have, there's eight of us here uh, all of us will try to do a bit of the sewing so at the end of the evening, usually it's been around 8 o'clock, a robe has been finished, and that's offered to one of the senior monks. And that way it kind of closes the, the uh, rains retreat and the katina. And that morning the katina cloth is offered, and, uh, and it's, come, it, it's become a kind of um, time, a gift-giving time, or requisite time. So lay people will bring um, soap suds or robe cloth or you know anything that the monastery might use for the next year it's quite a, a festive kind of occasion and uh, so this year the our committee has invited us for the Kitina and in the last two years we've used the last two or three years we've used the uh, a beautiful Civitan Hall in um, Perth which is quite roomy but we always felt oh it's nicer to have it in the monastery it's nicer to be here so minimal uh, Kimiko thought through that floor design, so we have a real floor, and he's got the heaters lined up. He's going to put some ceilings in, so we're going to try it, try it in there. And the food. <laughs> food will probably yeah. somehow distribute here, because now you know, in a big function, the monks go and eat in their building. Okay. So we can actually spread food all through here. So if there's rain, we could we could do it. And and for this ordination, we're renting chairs. So we think we can get a hundred chairs in there for that ordination, That's a, including the platform that the monks will be on for the ordination. So it's worth trying for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing is really air. A hundred people, oh, it gets stuffy. Yeah. <coughs> so, uh, but they're screens, right? And some of them panels. Well, the screens are, n are are not necessary now. It's just if it if it's blowing wind or rain, well, and usually the wind is from the west side. So what we thought, if we keep the, if it's raining, we can keep the west side down, and then have this side open, and we have some. Uh, we'll figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, you do your retreat in the winter, right? Like an hour winter. Yes. So you kind of have the two retreats, but. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the 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 range retreat is really, it, it's a work time because it's the best season for us, and it, it's also a time where we move around a bit. So the real retreat, more intensive retreat, is the winter. But we try to keep, we try to observe the rains residents because that's what all of Theravada does, all so all of Asia and so on. So if if we were kind of moving around at that time, like going to visit Asia, they said, "Why aren't you in a monastery for the monsoon?" Right. So we try to keep to that. It would make more sense if those rules around the rains residents was in the winter. Teravod's too big for us just adjusting it right so so we do that so we end up having two periods but the winter is perfect perfect time for, for retreat and uh, then we have like no work periods very few meetings so it's a, a lot of solitude practice for the monks and we have you know, five or usually six lay people staying with us and they run the kitchen in the office uh, minimum of a month usually and then maximum three months. So some 
very few people can get a whole three months off. So sometimes, some yeah, usually a month or so. And it's really quiet because of the winter and the mm -hmm. snow. It's As and everyone's really in, into solitude and some. And what happens with the lay people, they, they form their own practice group. Um, but the people that come are pretty serious. So they, they kind of encourage each other. And But the monks are very much in solitude. Like we, you know, we're, we're there to ask questions, but there, there is no real program or uh, no work schedule. Because the monastery is trying to get people monks especially to see themselves in solitude and in community and to learn and gain strength from both of those so those periods of solitude where there's like one, two months with no structure are very informative very informative. some do well, some get depressed yeah. and then community some do well and some get depressed <laughs> so you gotta see yourself in both Yeah, it's a kind of structure we've worked on a lot. So we kind of know, we know, it's quite quite easy to, to to design a monastery now because we've had so much experience. We kind of know what we would like it to achieve. We have sort of a, kind of a vision where we're going, little by like like we'd like to get separate accommodation for men and women. That's much more in a monastic. Um, so we're thinking about, we, we were talking with Venerable, like building some small kutis over there, and that takes a long time to get it right, but, and give lay people more, probably more solitude, so get that right, but it takes time and money. Yeah. And decision making. And decision making, which now <laughs> is much more out of my hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it is really, yeah. More Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, shall we call it a day?